A reading from Acts 18, 18 to 27. After Paul stayed in Corinth for some time, he said goodbye to the brothers and sisters. At the Corinthian seaport of Sincrea, he had his head shaved since he made a solemn promise. Then, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, he sailed away to Syria. After they arrived in Ephesus, he left Priscilla and Aquila and entered the synagogue and interacted with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer, but he declined. As he said farewell to them, though, he added, God willing, I will return. Then he sailed off from Ephesus. He arrived in Caesarea, went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After some time there, he left and traveled from place to place in the region of Galatia and the district of Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jewish man, Apollos, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Messiah and spoke with a fiery spirit and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him in and explained the way to him more accurately. And when he wished to cross over into Achaia, the sisters and brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Upon his arrival, he greatly helped those who had, through grace, come to believe. The word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Let's sing hymn number 115 together, shall we? Praise be to God.
All right, Adam, let's begin our slides. As that's coming up, I'll let you know that this sermon is a series of stories. A number of years back, this was before COVID, so it was a number of years back, we here at Seattle Mennonite Church had a watershed discipleship worship series in which we intentionally grounded ourselves in the land and waterways of our surrounding watershed. And one of the centering quotes that we drew from as we created that series of really kind of inhabiting our space was this adapted from a Senegalese environmentalist, Baba Diom. We won't protect places we don't love. We can't love places we don't know. And we don't know places we haven't learned. And so we sat about to learn so that we might know, so that we might love, so that we might honor and protect. I also love from our own Jen Hebert, the definition of love being deep attention over time. I am forever grateful to you for that, Jen. It's a gift that will live in me long. Love is deep attention over time. I'm thinking about um, listening to Sarah Augustine in the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast, having a conversation with Sherry Hostetler. And in that, Sarah reflected on the difference between faith as she has come to understand it in Christian circles and reverence as she has come to understand it in her indigenous circles. And she is, of course, both an indigenous woman of Christian faith. She said one of the things that Christians often talk about with faith is it's a faith in something that we don't see. And she contrasted that with the indigenous inherited wisdom of reverence for what is, noticing what is, and offering deep reverence and experiencing that as communion with God. Indeed, she says, we are dependent on the systems of life. They are not subordinate to us or our will as humans. And so she has embraced this indigenous practice of daily gratitude, giving thanks for what is, seeing what is, giving thanks for what is, offering reverence and knowing that as intimacy and prayer, knowing that as a knowing, a loving, and an honoring. Let's change the slide and look upon Tahoma. This is Tahoma. You might know her as Mount Rainier 
in the name of the settlers that gave, thought they could give their names to mountains. I've thought about that often. Mount Raymer. I, I just can't fathom. I just can't fathom that you didn't talk to the people who were here and say, what's the name of this mountain? And then call her by that name. No, I shall call her Mount Raymer. There she is, Tahoma. She is, as many of you know, part of the Cascades range. And when I moved here to Seattle in the year 2000, as a young adult, I fell in love with the Cascades. I still spend most of my mountain time in that mountain range. So it has my heart. However, when I brought my husband with me in 2015 to move back, John fell in love with the Olympics. So one year I decided to give him a gift for Christmas from a local artist and map artist and designer. Her name is Elizabeth Person. You may know her name or her work. Um, and because it was a gift for him and not for me, I bought the Olympics. Let's see that one. That slide. Isn't that lovely? It's a wonderful piece. She has a lot of uh, really wonderful um, pieces. And so here it is, the Olympic range. This is now um, hanging on our wall at home. And how grateful I am that John fell in love with the Olympics because I realized that I actually see the Olympics far more than I see the Cascades. That's the range that I gaze upon most often. So let's go one more, Adam, one more slide, and you will see the title slide without the quote. This is an image I've taken probably a thousand different versions of this from Carkeek Park. You know those places you go to and you take a dozen or a couple dozen more photos to add to the thousands you've got in your photo library. So I look at the Olympics far more often than the Cascades, and I've been doing neighborhood walks, and only recently, in the last couple of months, have I decided to start learning them. So let's go to the next slide, which is just a close-up of Elizabeth Person's piece. And basically, I can now identify the brothers and Mount Constance with Anderson and Jupiter in between. But I'm going slowly. I'm going slowly. Sometimes I look at the piece of art before I go on my walk, but more often than not, I go and I gaze at the mountains and I identify the ones that I know. And it's not just knowing their names, it's learning their movement. And then I come home and I consult the wall and I learn a little bit more. That's my story about mountains. And now I'm gonna tell you a story about neighbors We've had some challenging relationships with neighbors here at the church for those of us who come in day after day after day. Challenging relationships with neighbors who hang out in our alcove. Challenging relationships with neighbors that take to next door to complain about the Mennonites making homelessness worse. Challenges with all kinds of neighbors. I was walking in on Monday morning, and I had a brainstorm. What if I worked outside in the alcove? All right, let's take a next slide. <clears throat> I 
I realized after Dave took this picture for me that maybe I should have the blue tape side of that table facing in. But honestly, it sort of fits facing out, doesn't it? <laughs> Life is imperfect. So what do you know? This is me working in the alcove. I did it three days this week because the first day was the most fascinating day of work I have ever had as pastor of this church. I mean, just the most fascinating. I went to tech study that later that afternoon and checked in with my Lutheran friends and told them about this fascinating day of work I'd had. And Pam, retired Lutheran pastor, said to me, oh, you had office hours. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I did. I had office hours. And so I did it again on Tuesday, did it again on Wednesday. Jackie did it on Thursday, sent me a photo of her sitting out there in the alcove and then told me a man who only speaks French, just walked by and said to say, bonjour to Megan. I've done it three days and I'm telling you, I know more of our neighbors here than I learned in the previous eight years of ministry. Now, part of that is that I, like many of you, got to outsource my neighborhood relationships to Jonathan and to Melanie. They did it for me. And now I'm sitting out there and I am meeting people who use our alcove, who hang out in our alcove. They're recognizing me. We know more names. I am meeting people who go to literacy source for classes, many elderly immigrant women in beautiful dresses. I am meeting the staff of literacy source. I'm seeing Catherine and Dave more often, frankly, because they're out there walking on the streets and, uh, Frankly, I find it less distracting than my office, even with all these points of connections and relationships. And so I am being surprised by what I am learning and knowing and perhaps growing to love and to honor and to protect. In fact, I wrote this sermon out sitting right there and put together these slides sitting right there. I was maybe even working on it right when that photo was taken. That's my story about neighbors. Finally, I have a story about a mother. We're going to scripture now. Uh, why don't you go ahead and go to the next slide, Adam. Um, you know, when I was considering uh, we were considering, we were talking about Year W, Will Gaffney's lectionary resource that we've been using um, for this past year since fall. And so I had gotten this book, the Year W book from Will Gaffney. And one day I was reading my Christian Century, it's just over a year ago, because you can see the date on it. And I rip up my Christian Centuries because I don't keep them, I recycle them. So if there's anything I want, I just rip it out. Um, and so I ripped out this... Uh, this news article and I just tucked it in the book so that if we did it at some point I would I would remember this and what it was was know your mother's project returns after hiatus so this is Kara Quinn um, who is a um, seminarian seminary graduate um, but had a previous um, uh, 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 life of vocation um, of being an advertising creative, an illustrator, and a designer. So let's go to the next one. 
to just give you kind of a sense of what some of her contemporary icons are. So this is about knowing your mothers, drawing out some of the women from the scripture texts, and then also some of the women from the early church who maybe didn't appear in the Bible. She has these vibrant icon-like imagery. So this is, you can't quite read it, uh, Jezebel, maligned queen on the left, and Tamar on the right. Adam, let's go to the next one, just to get a few more. Martha on the left, and Anna the prophet on the right. Oh my goodness, I am so grateful to her for this image of Anna's face. I've always loved the story of Anna living to be ancient, in the temple, and my goodness, the lines on that face tell the stories of her life. Her idea, Kara Quinn, is that is to in, her intention is to honor these mothers in the faith and to reveal a more vibrant image of our God. And indeed, similar to Will Gaffney's project with Year W, perhaps most poignantly to me, I feel I have come to know. Mary the Tower, Mary Magdalene, Mary the Magdalene. Let's flip to Mary and see her. So this is how Kara Quinn imagines Mary Magdalene. But this year, this adventure through this lectionary has indeed helped me to know this mother in particular, this foremother in the faith, much more deeply, to even inhabit her story on Easter Sunday morning, to feel her in my body. And finally, we arrive at Priscilla. So I don't have any big proclamations in this sermon about Priscilla, but I have an opportunity to learn and to know and perhaps to love and to honor Priscilla and her husband Aquila were Jews that had been evicted from Rome so they had been they were refugees from Italy when Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews it's around the year 49 and so they found their way to Corinth, which is where they meet Paul. And they, Paul meets them there because they are, we might know them as tent makers. That's what I learned of them. That's basically all I knew of them growing up, tent makers or leather workers, as was Paul. And so Paul met Priscilla and Aquila as part of an artist's guild and lived with them for about 18 months in Corinth. Um, many thought that Paul was probably bivocational in many ways. He had to stop along the way and earn a little bit more money and to carry on his journeys, you know, to get on the next ship and set out to sea for the next sailing trip. So he stayed with them for 18 months in Corinth. And when he set sail for his next journey to Syria, he brought them with him. Priscilla. Priscilla is, uh, is actually Prisca, was her name. Priscilla is sort of the diminutive form. Um, thinking of Barb Buxman in the PNMC office, and I remember we were getting some tech help from somebody who knew her from her days living in, where did, they, where did she and Bob live? It was a Spanish-speaking country in the Americas. Guatemala? Nicaragua. Okay, Nicaragua, yeah. And so this woman got on to help us out, and she started calling Barb Barbarita. 
And I was like, oh, Barb, <laughs> we're going to remember that one. So that's what Priscilla is. Her name would have been Prisca. So the fact that Paul knows her as Priscilla, there's an intimacy and a deep knowing there. So Paul sets out for Syria, takes Priscilla and her husband Aquila with him. Might be at this point that I tell you that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in four different books of the Bible. And in most instances, they're always listed together, never either one of them individually. And most instances, her name comes first, which is significant because she's the woman, right? It, we wouldn't know much if it were the other way. That was just how it was done. But because her name appears first so often, we get a clue that Priscilla may have been the primary teacher or leader of the two of them. They set sail for Syria, and then they get to Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, and they get off the boat. And then when Paul takes off again, Priscilla and Aquila think they're coming along with him, and he says, nope. I want you right here. So there they are, teaching and living in community in Ephesus, this refugee family that has now moved to another location, finding community there. And that's when Apollos shows up, which we heard in our story this morning. He's a powerful Alexandrian intellectual. He is teaching. He is learned. He does know the way, it says, the way of Jesus. And so he too is creating community and disciples. But he gets a couple things wrong. And Priscilla and Aquila call him aside and do a little more teaching and then send him on his way again. Indeed, Priscilla, one of our four mothers in the faith, was a co-laborer with Paul, one of the early leaders in this early movement as people were finding their way together. There's even a scholarly conversation, let's say, about whether or not she's the author of Hebrews. I frankly don't care much one way or the other if she is. I don't have a lot invested in proving it one way or another, but I think it's interesting that folks are talking about it because uh, the book of Hebrews is acclaimed for its artistry its originality, its literary excellence. So it is seen as a really beautiful piece of ancient Greek writing. And it is the only book in the New Testament that is really explicitly anonymous in terms of authorship. And so there are some scholars that suggest that Priscilla may have been the author for just that reason, that her name was omit omitted either to suppress the female authorship or to protect the letter so that it got through. Because if it was written by a woman, woman it might have, might have been dismissed more easily. So there it is. I don't have any grand proclamation except to say, Priscilla, we have learned to know one of our foremothers in the faith a little bit more thanks to Will Gaffney's project, the Your W Lectionary, to whom I am grateful. Let's go to the last slide and just remind ourselves that we won't protect places we don't love. We can't love places we don't know, and we don't know places we haven't learned. And so may we, as a community of people who are kin with all of creation, kin with our tradition, 
kin with where we are headed, may we indeed grow in learning and knowing and loving and honoring and protecting. May it be so.